what is grace? We're going to be defining it today um, in part. In part. What is, we'll, we'll, I'll ask the question. Um, stand for the reading of scripture. We always stand for the scripture, right? Because we want to remind ourselves the significance and the substance of what we're doing. You have multiple texts from scripture in your handouts. We're going to read through them all, and then we're going to pray. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Romans 5.2 Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5.20 Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 6.12-14 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And James 4, 6, and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we believe your words, your promise, that as we gather in your name, you are here with us. That you are within each one of us individually who have fallen at your feet and received you and trust you by faith and are seeking to follow you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for each one of my friends here. Uh, please speak as we seek to listen to God. Speak through your word. Speak through your um, internal testimony and voice speak through our consciences, speak through these scriptures, and Lord, um, please meet us. We pray also for the women who are on the women's retreat this week. Please meet them powerfully. Please speak to them in ways that are refreshing and formational. Unite them together as uh, people radically committed to your ways and your kingdom in our city. Um, Lord, we trust you to be with us now. Speak, lead us. We are, we are submitted to you with hearts that not only want to hear and grow and help know your word, but with the posture of surrender, with the intent to obey your word. So please meet us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can take your seats. So I'm going to ask now, what, what is grace? What, what comes to mind when you think about the word grace, right? Mega Christian term, hear it constantly, read about it constantly. It's thrown around like its meaning is obvious, but it's kind of, I think, lost some of its specificity. So, what comes to mind when you think about the word grace? Unearned gift. Unearned gift, yeah, yeah. Unearned gift, unmerited gift is another common way of phrasing that, too. Unmerited favor, yeah. 
Anything else? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Not works. <laughs> there you go. Not works. Yeah, sometimes it's helpful to define in the negative. Anything else? A gift. A gift. Yeah. Um, isn't it? It's kind of a squishy word, right? It, it, sometimes it, it seems as though it's hard to pin down. I think if, if you're at all like me, as you have followed Jesus and been a Christian for a while and heard gobs of sermons that mention it, it, it feels like sentimentally good, but unspecifically good. You resonate with that? Like, oh, I feel some comfort, but I'm not exactly sure why. That's because the way the New Testament speaks about grace is manifold, all right? There are a lot of different sides to this mega theme in Scripture. So we do a good thing when we make everything in our life all about Jesus and the grace that he gives us, but we kind of do a disservice when we don't think hard and specifically about the way the Scripture upholds grace. Someone mentioned the technical word in Greek, charis, simply means gift. Grace is a gift. It's given to us. It does not begin with us, but it is intended to bless us. But gift is a rather ambiguous word in and of itself. It tells us something clear, though. God is a giver. God is a giver. And there's something really profound. I think, I think, that all God ever does is give. That Father, Son, and Spirit are pouring themselves out in love to one another, in glory, out into creation, and all that we have is from God's giving. James 1 tells us that every good thing in the world is a gift from God. Acts 17 tells us that every human being regardless of where they find themselves on the earth, lives and moves and has their being in God. So every person is gifted by God. He gives and gives and gives to all. But there's a distinction that we make between what is called God's common grace. It's a theological term. It's not one that's in Scripture explicitly. But common grace is God's kindness to the whole world. Everyone exists, uh, regardless of whether you follow Jesus or not, because of God's kindness. God is kind to all. And yet, the New Testament speaks very clearly about what theologians call special grace. That's the grace that we enter into when we begin to follow Jesus, when we entrust ourselves to his saving work and to his lordship. That's really the question that we're after right now. So what is the special gift that God gives to believers, that God gives to Christ followers? This is where far too often our bad theology starts to take root. Okay? Many Christian teachers say things like, uh, one author that I read early on in my discipleship of Jesus, speaking of grace, this author wrote, you are really and truly and completely free. There's no kicker. 
There is no if, and, or but. You are free. You can do the right or wrong. You can obey or disobey. You can run from Christ or run to Christ. You can choose to become a faithful Christian or an unfaithful Christian. You can cry, cuss, and spit, or laugh, sing, and dance. You can read a novel or the Bible. You can watch television or pray. You're free, really free. Now, there's some profound, like, some of the stuff draws us in a good way, right? Like, uh, particular decisions that you might make or things that might not be deemed churchy or Christian. There are a lot of things that we put traffics on that have really nothing to do with real grace. And yet, for that author, grace is unconditional love that means we are free to do whatever we want because God will, in the end, forgive us of everything. Is freedom, in that sense, really what we most deeply need? Freedom to just do whatever. Scripture does speak of freedom, but it never speaks of freedom to do whatever we want. In fact, Scripture says that we're servants of Jesus. And Jesus himself had harsh things to say about the consequences for disregarding what he says. Right? At the end of Matthew 7, he says, if you hear my words and don't do them, you're building your house on sand and it's going to crumble in this life. If you hear my words and do them, you'll have a foundation. Life will go well, even through the storms. So that's not grace. Another best-selling author who leads a ministry called Grace Walk Ministries, surely he can help us, writes, The climate of the Church of Jesus Christ today finds itself in a place where legalism has a debilitating effect on many people. Across the world, the focus within the church is largely on our behavior and how we need to do a better job of living the Christian life if we expect God to move on our behalf and in our midst. The result of that focus has been devastating. The only antidote to this problem is grace. For this author, grace means freedom from legalism. Now, legalism in pop culture church terms is defined as God conditioning some of his action on our behavior. And so we say, that's legalism. Galatians, Romans, even Jesus call out religious legalist types. But that's not what Scripture has to say about legalism. Legalism, according to Scripture, is putting up certain dividing walls that give some people access to God, and some people are barred from God. That misunderstanding is why many of us in what the Western church actually think that our effort is in opposition to God's grace. And so we don't experience the promises of God in the way that we ought to. I, I can't say clearly enough that that mistake, defining legalism as Jesus is going to ask effort of you as you participate with him, is the most disruptive thing to discipleship in our day. It's why we don't experience the fullness of Jesus' presence. It's why we feel so empty. It's why we feel like all we get are Jesus giving us really, really sweet words that have no actual truth to them. Legalism is not you need to participate with God. One of my favorite authors says, uh, Christians burn through grace faster than sinners ever could. That grace is not opposed to effort, but opposed to earning. 
So it is legalism if we say you need to earn access to God. It is not legalism to say I will respond to God's grace with effort. That make sense? So that's not grace. I think some of us also tend to say, uh, to, to think that grace is mere leniency. It's kind of a, a surface level, right? So how common is it to say or see someone post on Twitter, I just need to give myself grace, right? There might be situations where we need to like not be so high strung. So I'm not saying that's wrong. That's just not the right word for it. Grace, you cannot give yourself grace. That's like saying I need to give myself a gift. Right? It's kind of hard to conceptually figure out. The reason that all of this matters is because if everything is grace, and if the wrong things are grace, and if the right things are not grace, we're going to be disrupted in our lives following Jesus and as a people. Everything from beginning to end in the Christian life is grace. We begin by grace. We endure by grace. We finish by grace. So we need to get it right. What is grace? Here we go. Simply put, grace is the gift of God himself. God is the gift that we are given. One old theologian put it this way. Grace is an overarching term for all of God's gifts to humanity all the blessings of salvation, all events through which are manifesting God's own self-giving. Grace is a divine attribute. Okay, we need to put our theology here in hats. Hats on for a minute here. Grace is a part of the character of God. He gives himself away. It's as though he's lurching towards us, seeking to give us more. As church, we try and boil down all of that broadness about the gifts of God with this definition of grace. Grace is the powerful presence of God doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves. Okay, let me read that again. Grace. Grace is the powerful presence of God doing in and through us what we can't do ourselves. 2 Peter 3.18, the first verse that we started out with, we're going to read it every week of, of the, for these three weeks, actually tells us something profound. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that peculiar when we consider what the most common definitions of grace are? Grace is an unmerited gift, unmerited favor. Um, you can't earn it as opposed to works. But here we're commanded to grow in it. How do you grow in something that's unmerited and a gift? Okay? If that's solely what it is. So I've heard some people say, you know, well, it's growing in your awareness of just how profound a gift is. I don't think that's what scripture talks about. You and I are commanded to grow in grace. And I think if you're conditioned like me in our like modern particular moment, even the notion that God commands us to do something starts to feel like anti-grace. You see how all these things are knotted together in us, and we need the gracious work of the Spirit to help us understand this.
there are six different aspects of grace in the New Testament, at least. Okay? Six different ways. Each week of these three weeks, we're going to take two of them. All right? All of them are beautiful. All of them are gifts to us. But the way that we live them out is different. So the first aspect of grace, justifying grace. Two, transforming grace. Three, reconciling grace. Four, satisfying grace. Five, empowering grace. And six, the gifts of grace. It's really important. This, this is not just so that we would have categories and be a little bit more proud of how much we know scripture or how much information we have. This is so abundantly practical for your everyday life because we all have need in every one of these areas. And they're the gifts that God gives us in himself and how it radically reshapes everything. So imagine a house, right? We've used this analogy before, this metaphor before. Um, the house is life with God. We are intended, the gospel is good news because suddenly we're invited in. Sin uh, and alienation had cut us off that we were used to living apart from God. Every sin and misery, every brokenness, all of what is really death as a broad category comes from not being with God in communion. And in Jesus, the door is flung open and we're all invited in justification, this thing that says only in Jesus can you be made right with God, only through Jesus when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the doorway. There's no back door in this house. The yard that is wide and expansive in the back is well fenced in. You can't get in through the back door. Jesus is the way. But it's open to everyone. It's like two really big French doors. You ever seen a house with huge front doors? These are great front doors. They're broad and inviting, but there's only that. But sometimes we think that grace is so simplistic that it's just the doorway. And so our Christian life is like, man, I just really got to get to know this doorway. And so we're sitting there, and we're like, yeah, Jesus is the reason that my sins are forgiven. Man. And so talking to someone in the church a few months ago, Christian growth kind of got boiled down in their words to, I need to figure out all the ways I'm trying to earn my own merit before God, and then like lay those down and just accept Jesus more. And that's all the Christian growth really is. That's like examining the doorway and all of its beauty. And you've like particularly identified every nail and screw that holds it together. That's not the life that we're invited into through that door. We walk in, and there's transforming grace available to us. We get close to God, and we're changed. We participate with God, and we're transformed. There's reconciling grace. Peace among us and people is cultivated as we're united together in Jesus. Imagine a family room. Come together, and we're with others before Jesus himself. We're reconciled. There's satisfying grace. The dining room table is well stocked with food that fulfills every human longing and desire. There's empowering grace where we are kept going in endurance. We're carried by the power of God. And then there are gifts of grace. 
There's a tool shop where all of these things are given to us that we might actually make things that are blessings to others by the various gifts of grace that we're given. So you see how broad the Christian life is. How the gift of God and life with Him, it just changes everything. So today, justifying grace and transforming grace. Uh, justifying grace. Romans 5.2. We read it earlier. Through Him, that is Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All of us got into life with God, not by earning it. The only time Jesus ever uses the word justify or justification is in Luke, when he tells the story of a Pharisee who's at the temple. He's praying. He says, thank you, God, that you made me not like other people. That I fast twice a week. That I give tithes and alms of everything that I have. And then there's a second man there praying. And he's a tax collector. Really bad people in the eyes of society in that day. And they actually did really bad things. Like they extorted people and used the power to take advantage of others. Uh, and he beats his breast. He wouldn't lift his eyes up to the temple, God's presence. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified rather than the other. There's no indication that the Pharisee didn't actually do all those things. He probably did fast twice a week. He probably did tithe everything that he had. But the humility and dependence on God himself and the need for mercy is the posture that justifying grace demands of us. None of us come to God with any boast. You are unique and individual, knit together by God, but none of those unique aspects of who you are gives you a leg up on anyone else. In fact, it's it really is just Jesus that gets any of us in this. One of my favorite authors says in this way, he speaks of union with Jesus. Um, when, when you see Jesus with your spiritual eyes open in all of his glory and say, I will trust you to deal with the problem of sin in me. It is the biggest problem in all the world. And it's the biggest problem in me. And I believe that you laid down your life on the cross for my sin. Scripture says so clearly that sin is the thing that keeps us away from God. We tend to think that God's just like holding his hand over us in punishment and judgment. When actually there's a bit more complexity in that. There certainly is judgment that God has. But there's also a sense in which we can't get back to God. We will not get into God's presence because of the shame and guilt and the opposition to him. And it's as though Jesus comes running to us and lays down his life to prove and to show us the depths to which his love goes. He grabs hold of us when we turn to him. And now we're in him. You are united to Jesus. And if you imagine where Jesus is and where you are 
uh, we tend to think there's quite a lot of distance between us and Jesus. And so that word united to Jesus has really hard kind of imagery for us to overcome. And Ray Orland is a pastor, retired a while ago, but he had this phrase that captured my mind and imagination. He said to his church in Nashville, so I can say to us in LA, as much as you are seated here in Los Angeles, so too you are seated in a real way. You are in Jesus Christ. That happens because you have Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit can poured out wherever Holy Spirit is, there Jesus is. This dimension of heaven has brought us in. We've been swept in heaven here on earth. In the presence of God. Now, Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace found all more. Justifying grace keeps you safe, regardless of how much you sin. Regardless of how much you fail. Regardless of how much you hear God's word and say, Nope! Not doing it. In fact, in some uh, heart-rending kind of way, Paul says here in Romans 5.20, that as you fail and rebel more and more and more, grace increases. So, as you open up in your discipleship group and, and walk into the light about addiction you've kept hidden from people for so long, and you finally um, share it, and you feel your shoulders loosen, you feel oxygen enter your soul again, and you feel the brightness and lightness of being known. And then you go home and your whole day the next day goes badly. And so you revert back into old coping mechanisms and you're just fighting this battle to not go back to the old ways of pornography or food or whatever it may be. And you give in again. And you feel worse than you've ever felt before. Somehow, in some way, this invites you to see that grace has expanded in that moment. There is more of God's kindness towards you. There is more assurance of his love for you. And the biggest battle sometimes is just believing that God continues to have mercy and grace towards you, right? So, how do we live that out? Um, humility. Justification demands and invites us to humility. If none of us had a leg up on anybody else to get into following Jesus, then all of us acknowledge that it's only because of him that we're here. Now, if you actually go back and read the places in the New Testament where justification is most unpacked, actually that's the main purpose that Paul and others are unpacking justification for. It's not just to say, Jesus is really, really effective at getting forgiveness for you. It's actually to say, you need to humble yourselves and pursue unity together because all of you are right with God because of his work anyway. Jews and Gentiles were fighting over what it meant to be together and what needed to happen to follow Jesus. 
The first three chapters of Romans are all Paul just saying, hey, all of you fell short, and Jesus' grace is big enough, so get along. Humility that flows into unity that can even endure suffering. So there are two equal and opposite reactions that the enemy would want for us as people. And grace and its justifying nature is the antidote. First, the route that the enemy would want us to go in our discipleship to Jesus is self-pity. Self-pity is really tricky. Self-pity is very common in the church today. Because we think that God wants us to feel really bad. And so if we feel bad enough, if we project feeling bad enough, then somehow we've satisfied God's requirement on us. But self-pity is not sorrow. Self-pity is the underbelly of pride. Christian counselor and author Chip Dodd puts it this way. Self-pity is a way to escape the pain of sadness by trying to make others feel sadness for us. I'm attempting to express the truth of my heart, that I am sad, but I'm unwilling to let myself feel sad. So I try to make you feel sad for what I refuse to feel. Self-pity is an attempt to manipulate others into taking responsibility for our heart's response and neediness. Here's why that really, really, really matters. We can't get back at the feet of Jesus from sin and waywardness through self-pity. Humility leads to self-responsibility. And self-responsibility is the only way to maintain and return in dignity to the feet of Jesus. Bad theology regarding grace leads to the trap of self-pity. The thought, I've sinned so badly, God couldn't possibly love me. I'm such a loser that I'm on Jesus' C-squad. So we just stop trying and focus, especially us guys, on things we think we're better at. So we give ourselves to work or we give ourselves to sports. The number of times I've coped with feeling inadequate by going out on the basketball court and draining threes in someone's face is substantial. But it's self-pity. Let me just put it this way. You can't out-sin Jesus' glory. He swapped places with you. If you think I'm inadequate or God could never use me, you're saying, in effect, my failings are stronger than Jesus' strength. That's pride. Plain and simple. But we swallow it down because it feels like sorrow. It feels like low thoughts about ourselves. God has more dignity for you than me. That's justifying grace. It gets us in and it sustains us in confidence. So we take responsibility for our lives. We dust ourselves up after, off after we fall down for the thousandth time and we give into our addiction or whatever it might be and we say, Jesus will sustain me, receive me, and transform me. That's our second part, transforming grace. Because the second temptation of the enemy is to get us to believe that we'll never change. We take responsibility 
and we are transformed by grace. Romans 6, 12-14 Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now, if we just like throw out all of our Christian operating system from like the Western easy believism kind of Christian idea that says Jesus is my world new soul, I get in heaven when I die. And we say, let's take this at face value. Things that stand out to me. Don't let sin reign in your body to make you obey its passions, sins, as though it's a separate entity from you. Don't present your members to sin as instruments like, you are a thing, you are an instrument that is a choice. As those who have been brought from death to life, sin will not have dominion over you. Two simple observations. One, this is about transforming grace. You don't need to sin any longer. This is good news. You don't need sin anymore. And we'll get to satisfying grace later on. That's a big part of this. That you can actually find joy and peace in things that are not opposed to God and far from Him. But here, we need to see something. You don't need sin anymore. You are not enslaved. You are free. But you're not free from God. Like that first author said, you're free from sin. Which always leads and cultivates death in you. The reason that you feel satisfied when you sin, but you feel hollowed out underneath, is because you've participated in the work of death. That is death. It tricks you for a moment and hollows you out more miserable, more hooked. You are free from that. The number of times I've sat down with, with believers trying to follow Jesus in our city over the last 15 years, 10 years here, 15 years in ministry, where they say, I know that the struggle is just always going to be a part of my life. I've, I've started saying, sorry, let me interject for a moment. That's not true. That's actually a stronghold of the devil. And I use that language very particularly. Because if you think you are doomed to continue in the bondage of sin, you don't realize what grace has bought you. And I know people in the room who have told me that and are, are changed now and no longer in what they were in. Transforming grace shatters the shackles of sin. Now I'm not saying, bad theology, old tensions, right? I'm not saying you will achieve perfection. I'm not even saying that every sin you struggle with, God will free you from. There are some that God will allow to continue in your life, though we don't know what those are. We don't get to decide what those are and tap out. So 
But Paul says I have born in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is. I think that it's. That we have discussion in podcast. The point is, you cannot allow yourself to believe you are enslaved to sin. You're not. Everything in you will feel like you will be miserable without it. We can own that reality. I will not be happy if I don't sin. Well, that's a different question. We'll get to that next week. But you are not enslaved. You are free. That is good news because I know in this room, I even believe it about certain things myself. You think you can't live a happy life without certain things that are off the list for follower Jesus. That's why we need community. Because we need to open up in a space that just says, I need your help. I need your help seeing this. And as we go through the process of walking in honest transparency with other people, that vulnerability is the power that God uses to bring about transformation. Real Christian freedom is not doing whatever you want to do, but becoming the kind of person who has freedom from death of self-destroying sin for life in God's presence. That's real freedom. The second observation, beyond you don't need to sin anymore, is that God actually conditions our transformation upon our action. God conditions our transformation on our action. God will not transform in 99.9% of cases. Again, God holds tensions of theology, right? There are some things God snaps his fingers and you're forever different. Most things, God preconditions our transformation on our effort. We are intended to participate in heaven on earth and become more uh, filled with the presence of God, reordering our desires, making us new over and over again, day by day, but that requires effort. So, we will be transformed if we participate with God. Um, if we refuse, here's where it gets really sober for us. James 4, 6, and 7. He gives more grace. You need to know, however you feel right now, because chances are you feel somewhere between, wow, if that's really what God offers, I'm really looking forward to that much. <laughs> um, if that's what God offers, that may be better than I've ever realized, and feeling like a failure. Because we think that being human is being effective in our particular place. We think of getting good grades, being a high achiever, having the best job, having self-sufficient money, whatever it might be, that that's what makes us really human living a good life. But God gives more grace because His presence is what makes for a good life. Therefore, it says, back to James 4, 6, and 7, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we live this out? This transformation. Transforming grace. All I want to invite you to is half 
have a greater hunger for God to do what you think is possible. If justifying grace invites us to humility, we didn't do anything to get in, we're sustained by nothing to do with us, transforming grace invites us to hunger that God could do in and through us more than we ever dreamed possible. Because if we're hungry, then we're eager to participate. The opposite of hunger is apathy. And apathy plagues us in our city. Especially us men. Okay, we're going on a tree right now. Part. Some of you are here. Okay, listen in for a minute. Um, men, we, we feel like we are failures, we're riddled with disappointment. Many of us were never encouraged. We don't even know what it's, looked like to have, what it's like to have someone look us in the eyes and say, I'm proud of you. I love you. You are adequate. And so we're terrified of failure. And so we focus on what we think we can be experts in and give ourselves to it. And then we cope, rather than coping with intimacy with people and God, we cope with uh, pseudo-intimacy. Whether it's, it's achievement or pornography. And neither one of those things will produce real, full-hearted uh, life. And so I want to get even beneath that, down into apathy, or maybe on the surface of that, the shield that guards us with hearts that are hardened to hope, and say, God has more for you than you expect. God can do more in and through you than you expect. But here's the thing. Apathy's symptom is avoidance of responsibility, avoidance of hope. We're called to take responsibility for ourselves, to have hope enough that we can take responsibility for others, that God can use us and we give ourselves away in service. And I want you, you have a Father in Heaven who believes in you. And failure is okay. And there, I just want to, I want to invite you into community enough deeply in this people that you could experience being hoped for, that you could experience being believed in, so you'd have enough resilience to take up real effective responsibility because God wants to make you a conduit for his work in the world. The only way to lose is to stay on the sidelines. Let me give you an example of how we kind of step in a little bit without stepping in with two feet, okay? Um, as a community here at church, right, gathering of, of God's people, um, we, we want to do things that are like putting one foot in without going both feet in. And so uh, we serve, you know, serve on a team once a month, whatever it might be, but when we're invited into to saying, hey, can you help lead some other people? Can you do scheduling where like other people are relying on you? That's a really, really hard ask. Or sometimes, like in the last couple of months, we've had people come up here from teams and say, hey, this is what they need. Um, and then we have 
people come forward and it's so encouraging. Then they go back and look at their schedules and then they say, actually, I can't serve. So we want to make life with God auxiliary rather than central. If, if we aren't able to learn in the household of God, which is what 1 Timothy 3 calls the church, what real, secure, stable, holistic, human life in the presence of God looks like, we will never find it out there. And that's always what's replacing real grace. So my simple invitation is to say, decenter whatever it is that you've put, you know, your, your effort, your focus, your zeal, whatever you think can make you effective, whatever you're fighting intimacy in, set those aside, know that grace covers you, and learn the way of following Jesus with us. That means conforming into some structure. One really simple way is to actually go through our membership process. Membership makes no sense in our modern day in the same way that many people say, well, why do we need a marriage certificate? Why do we need a ceremony? We're married in our hearts. And so many people say, well, why do I need to become a member of a church? I'm like doing all the things. But you're not committed in writing, like in a, in a formal way, to pass through and say, I am vocalizing my commitment. Because you want to know what happens? Leaders in the church say, like, wow, we have so many people that are doing some stuff. But when we need people to actually own some stuff and take responsibility, there's a void. And so I say this for even leaders in the church to say, we need you, all of you, men and women know. We need you. Um, grace is an invitation into the church to do life with the people of God. Very, very, very simple. Like non-condemning, knowing any of that, but real life. Okay. So grace is transformation. Grace is justification. Um, let's think deeply about these things and center, center all of us on hoping and following Jesus more fully than we are. So would you pray with me? Lord, please help us. I pray for any of my friends who just feel defeated, feel like failures, feel the longing in their hearts for more, and yet in their minds are, are bound by the bad news that somehow we can outsin the goodness of Jesus, or somehow that we are too far gone from being transformed and becoming new. Um, for those people, please help us. Help us, Jesus. Holy Spirit, like the wind is blowing around and raging outside, blow through this room and give us more hope than we had coming in. Lord, I believe in my friends because I believe in seeing the way that you work in people. So please fill us, change us, transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.